Oh, Father, as we come to your word today, Father, we come to such a difficult passage. We come to such a steep and impossible challenge. And Father, I'm only a flawed messenger. But your word is inerrant. Your word is infallible. Your word is authoritative. And your word teaches us everything that we need to know about life. And so, Lord, I pray that your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would work in us today to increase our resolve to follow and glorify Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, given that we spent the last couple weeks talking about Lot and his wife, I thought that this would be an appropriate parable for us to look at today. We're going to be continuing in our study of the parables today. We will resume our study in Genesis next week. The aim of the marketing industry worldwide is to give the customer what the customer wants, to give the customer what the customer wants, when the customer wants it, and at a price that the customer is comfortable with paying. And for the most part, American consumer values show that we prefer convenience almost every other thing, including virtue. If the customer wants bread, think about it. If you go to the bread, if you tell your wife, go to the store and get a loaf of bread for me, how ambiguous is that? It's so ambiguous because there are so many options. There are thousands of options. There is sliced bread. There's unsliced bread. There's gluten, bread with gluten. There's bread that's gluten-free. There is high carb. There's, there's low carb. There's bread with seeds. There's bread without seeds. There's white. There's wheat. There's artisan. There's all kinds of bread. What the customer wants, the customer wants. And they want to give it to you. Customers want a car that can get them from zero to 60 in under six seconds. There are a hundred cars that can do that. So, so let's give them a car that can do it in five seconds and let's just charge them a few thousand dollars more. Customers love the taste of soda, but they don't want all the calories. So let's give them something, something with a, a substitute for sugar, even if that substitute is technically a poison. The aim of the marketing industry is to give the customer, give the consumer what they want, when they want it, at a price that they're comfortable with, and it's all for the sake of corporate profits, of growing the company that provides the goods. It's all for the sake of having as many people as possible using their products day in and day out so that the company can get bigger and create even more products to give to even more people. This is the consumerist mindset that permeates our culture. It's a mindset that we're trained to have at a very, very young age, by the time we're three or four probably. And it's a mindset that is totally incompatible with biblical Christianity. And yet, one book on church growth after another, one book after another, follows these worldly models of church growth and evangelism. It's completely 
opposed to the philosophy of the Bible. And yet so many churches operate from this consumer mindset. The church is treated like a product. And so the pastor can't be too dressed up. No, let's dress him down a little bit so that people can relate to him. The pastor preaches for too long. Well, you know, we're going to have a church where, where the pastor doesn't preach for more than 30 minutes. Better yet, let's have a church where the pastor doesn't preach. Let's have a church where the pastor just has a discussion, where he just talks for 30 minutes or less. What kind of music do people like? Let's give them something that they like. Let's give them stuff that sounds like the stuff on the radio. And don't forget to bring the fog machine. Don't forget the lasers. If you've ever received a flyer from a church in the mail inviting you to try their church out, there is almost always, always, I I, I haven't personally seen an exception, there's almost always an appeal to how fun and how casual and how easygoing it is to go to their church. I have yet to see one invitation that says, come and hear our pastor preach for 45 minutes on your need to repent of all of your sins and to turn to Christ. Anybody ever seen a flyer that says that? I personally haven't. The church in our day and age is filled with what John MacArthur calls Christianity light. The majority of churches want to give you something that tastes great and is less filling. Because that's how you get people to come and stay. And the inevitable result is that the gospel loses its power. Because that's exactly what happens. That's the inevitable result of watering down or diluting the gospel message to make it more comfortable or more appealing for people. Instead, the gospel in so many churches today is presented as a way to just add another dimension of happiness and self-fulfillment to your life. Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. And the the, the lost person says, great, I do too. Can Jesus help me with what I plan to do? And thus another inevitable result is that there are scores of unconverted, unregenerate people out there who think they've heard the Gospel, who think they've been saved, but they've only heard the powerless Gospel of self-esteem, self-fulfillment, self-centeredness that will supposedly save you, but will never confront you, will never demand that you change. And of course, this Jesus would never do anything to make you feel even a little bit uncomfortable. That sounds like a genie. In fact, that must be where where they got the idea for the genie. From Jesus, right? Because Jesus operates the same way. No. Today we're going to be continuing in our study of the parables as we look at the parables of counting the cost of following Christ, the cost of discipleship. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 33, maybe to 35. We'll see how much time we have. But the central point of this passage is that the gospel is God's free offer of salvation and yet it will cost you everything. Let me say that again because that wasn't a mistake. The gospel is God's free invitation to salvation and yet it will cost you everything. And you might say, well, that sounds like you're contradicting yourself. It sounds like you've got two opposing things lined up against each other how can the gospel be a free offer of salvation if it's going to cost me everything and if that's the question that you're asking i'm glad that that's the question that you're asking that's the question that you should be asking 
But think of it this way. Imagine that I decided that I want to run a marathon. And you look at me and you say, you know, there's no way that he could do it. You're right. There's no way I could do it right now. But at one time in my life, I actually did aspire to run a marathon. It's been a few years, but I have run in three half marathons. And I used to think about running a full marathon. That is 26.2 miles, for those of you who may may not know how long a marathon is. 26.2 miles. But let's just say, hypothetically, that I wanted to run a marathon, and somebody said, if you'll do it, I'll I'll pay the fee for you. I'll I'll, I'll pay all your, your fees for registration. Great. So, for me, it's free, right? In one sense, yes, it is. But in another sense, no, it's not. Because if I want to run a marathon, it will take months of diligent training it will cost me at the very least it will cost me time running a marathon in fact could cost me everything sometimes that happens sometimes people die when their bodies are pushed too far further than their bodies ready to be pushed so it's free and yet at the same time running a marathon has a very very high cost at one point in Jesus' ministry he was attracting all kinds of people multitudes huge crowds of people multitudes of people followed him around listening to him preach watching him heal the sick watching him give sight to the blind watching him restore hearing to somebody who was mute many of them even witnessed jesus resurrecting someone from the dead back in luke chapter 7 In our day and age, we might say that given the fact that Jesus had all these crowds following Him, He must have been doing something really right since He had such an enormous crowd following Him around. But it's at the height of His popularity that He preaches one of His most challenging messages, if not His most challenging message. And He tells these parables that make it clear that the goal of His ministry was not to attract a huge following. So we start with Luke chapter 14, looking at verses 25 and 26. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So the passage starts here with Luke telling us that Jesus had all these people. He had great crowds following Him. And we would think that is fantastic that all these people are following Jesus and all these people are hearing the Gospel. For the people who were following Him, it must have felt so exciting to see all these great miracles and to hear this teacher who preached with such authority. To have great crowds like this would be just about any pastor's dream. Why? Because the worldly mindset teaches us to measure success by numbers. To quantify it by how many people are following. But while pastors and and church leaders can be misled and, and fooled by numbers, Jesus can't be. He didn't want anyone to be following Him with a false sense of hope or with a false sense of assurance. He didn't want anybody to be following Him for the wrong reasons. or He didn't want anybody to be following Him only half-heartedly. 
And that's exactly why it's at this point that Jesus has all these people following Him. And it's like He stops in His tracks, He turns around, and He says to them, if anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. That might make you uncomfortable. It should. It makes me uncomfortable. And that's what it's supposed to do. This is startling language. This is shocking language. This is language that's designed to make us think. To make us realize how serious it is to be a disciple of Christ. But let's start by asking the question, what does it even mean to be a disciple? What is a disciple? It's a student. Technically, that, that's, that's literally what it means. It means you're a student. It's somebody who is learning from a master, from a teacher. And in first century Israel, to be a disciple of a rabbi meant you followed them around and you learned to imitate them in everything that they do. All of their daily routines, all of their daily habits, you learn to become like the master. Jesus kind of defines disciple for us in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, where He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's what a disciple is. It's somebody who is learning to be like the Master. In fact, the term disciple is actually interchangeable. It's synonymous to the term Christian. So what Jesus is telling us here is that the requirement to be a Christian is that a person must hate their family, their, their father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters. And again, this is shocking language. It's, it's language that should startle you. That should confuse you, maybe. That should trouble you, maybe. This is anything but a consumer-friendly invitation. He says that if you're going to follow Him, if you're going to be His student, if you're going to be His disciple, if you're going to be a Christian, it will require that you hate the people you're most inclined to love. Now, okay, so we know what being a disciple is. Let's move now and see. That's the first thing we need to understand. But the next thing we need to understand is that Jesus is using a figure of speech here. Jesus is not literally saying that you need to hate, as in despise your family. He's using hyperbole. He's obviously exaggerating. So why is that obvious that he's doing that? Well, because Jesus doesn't contradict himself. And Jesus never contradicts Scripture. We're commanded to, to love our mother and to honor our mother and father, to love our neighbors, to, to love our fellow man. And if we, we love our fellow man, if we love our neighbors, how much more are we supposed to love our mother and father, or our family members, or our spouse, or our children? And that's the way that God designed it to be. He designed us to love our family members. And Jesus isn't nullifying or contradicting any of this. He's using a figure of speech. Why would he use a figure of speech? To get your attention. To make you think. To make you realize how serious what he's saying is. And think very carefully about what he's saying. So what does he mean, then, if he is using hyperbole? If he's just exaggerating? He means that you cannot share your heart with Jesus and with somebody else. It means that if you think of, your, of your, uh, the things that you love as a hierarchy or a totem pole, nothing can be even close to God. 
God must be your first love. Your love for Christ must be so wholehearted, so great, so above and beyond any other love that the love that you have for your most beloved family members or for your own life, for that matter, would pale in comparison. Jesus wanted them, Jesus wanted us to understand that to be a disciple, to be a Christian, means loving Jesus above everything else. It means surrendering all of your allegiance to Christ first and foremost. And if you think about what he's saying here for a second, do you know what this really boils down to? This boils down to a first commandment issue. What's the first commandment? Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. And of course, before doesn't just mean spatially speaking or priority-wise. It means in His presence, even close to Him. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's why he says you have to hate your father, mother, all your family members if you're going to follow him. It's a first commandment issue. He's saying that if the love that you have for mom or dad or wife or spouse or or kids or self is greater than the love that you have for Jesus, it is idolatry. Can a wife, can a husband, can a child, can your family become an idol? Absolutely. 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 Anything, anything can be an idol. Anything that you put above God is your God. Small g. Anything that you put above God is an idol. Only God is worthy of your highest and deepest and greatest love, pursuit, and devotion. And somebody might say, you know, Pastor, you're being awfully extreme here. Well, two things. Number one, uh, it's Jesus who's saying this. And number two, yes, it is extreme. Because God is worthy of nothing less than extreme devotion. Now, some people will try to explain what Jesus says here. They'll, they'll kind of try to, to skirt around it by saying that there's a distinction between being saved by Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. So really what they're arguing is that there's this difference between salvation and discipleship as if you can have one without the other. They're essentially arguing that it's possible to make such a, a, a huge distinction that you would say that There's a difference between justification, that is being freed from the penalty of sin, and sanctification, which is being freed from the power of sin, as though it's possible to have one without the other. As if it's possible to be forgiven and yet not be a disciple. As if it's possible to be justified but not sanctified. And I must say that there was a time in my life when I tried to go with that. And it was sin that led me there. But if our guide is sola scriptura, that is, if the Bible alone is our guide, if the Bible alone is our authority, then we must confess that there is no support whatsoever for such an idea that there are people who are justified without being sanctified. There is nothing in Scripture that supports that idea. In fact, there are 
multiple passages that support the fact that those who are justified will be sanctified. They will be grown in the likeness of Christ. Scripture is clear that those who are justified will be sanctified. Those who are saved will be purified. They will grow in the likeness of Christ. God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Romans 8.29, that good is growing in Christ's likeness. No exceptions. No exceptions. The Gospel is God's free offer of salvation, but it will cost you everything. And why does Jesus say this? He says it out of kindness, out of love, out of mercy, out of compassion, because He doesn't want people to be following Him for the wrong reasons, and He doesn't want people who are following Him to have a false sense of hope or assurance. That would be hateful. It's hateful to string somebody along and give them false hope or false assurance. He wants to make sure that we see that if we're to follow Him, if we're to be a disciple, if we're going to be a Christian, we can't be more devoted to anyone or anything more than we're devoted to Christ. He wants to make sure that we understand that you cannot be half-hearted in your commitment to Him. He wants you to understand that you cannot be casual about following Him. And it's all a first commandment issue. This is all just the first commandment applied to the New Testament. And so I have to ask you, friends, to what or whom are you supremely devoted? To what or whom do you have the greatest amount of allegiance, of loyalty, of love, of devotion? What is your highest priority in life? To what or whom do you bow? To what or whom are you supremely devoted? The truth is that Jesus is giving an invitation to follow Him. To love Him. To pursue Him above everything else in life. He says, come to Me. Come to Him. It's an invitation. This is the Gospel. But we need to understand that the Gospel isn't just an extreme makeover. It's a takeover. It changes everything. It's not just prettying everything up. It's changing the whole thing. The call to follow Jesus is a call to self-denial. It's not a call to self-fulfillment. It's not a call to self-actualization. It's not a call to self-realization. It's an invitation to find your life, to gain your life by losing it. To gain your life by surrendering it. It's an invitation to follow Jesus no matter what the cost is. And it's not something that tastes great but less filling. It's something that by man's fallen wisdom, by man's fallen understanding, would taste absolutely awful. And it would be too costly. To fallen man, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And so just to drive the point home, Jesus continues in verse 27. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. Now to say the very least about this, Jesus is saying that there is no such thing as a superficial 
disciple. Jesus is saying this to confront those who had been following him for superficial or wrong reasons. And the most unloving thing that he could have done, again, is to allow the casual, superficial follower to follow along with a false sense of hope and a false sense of assurance, thinking that they are in like Flynn. The image of a person bearing their cross in the first century was the image of a dead man walking. It was the image of somebody who was already as good as dead. If you, if you bore a cross, it meant that you were, were already, you were already halfway there. Not half dead. Not superficially dead. It meant that you were, you were dead. Your life didn't belong to you anymore. It was gone. It was no longer yours to cling to. And so Jesus is saying that to follow Him will require a total uncontested commitment to Him. Now, is this saying that you have to be perfect to be a Christian? Absolutely not. If you're, if you're perfect, you don't, you don't need to follow Jesus. You're, you're, you're just as good as He is. But the bad news is, none of us is perfect. Which is also good news. That's not, that's not what's required. Perfection is not what's required to follow Jesus. Because every one of us would be cast out if that were the case. No, salvation is God's free gift. But discipleship will cost you everything. And you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have salvation without also having discipleship. It's a package deal. Jesus' words aren't really hard to understand, are they? They're not hard to understand, but they are hard to swallow. And yet this is the nature of the gospel. This is the divine summons that's extended to anyone and everyone under heaven to come, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. This is the invitation that we extend to sinners even today to follow Him, to forsake anything and everything that stands in the way of being reconciled to God and to make Christ one's highest priority in life. More than an invitation, it is a divine imperative command to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants us to understand that unlike the Gospel that's presented in so many venues today, discipleship is not easy. It's difficult. It's not painless. It's arduous. There will be trials. It's not cheap. It is costly. And eternity will, re will reveal that it is the most precious, the most cherished the most valuable, the most worthy treasure in the entire universe. And it only makes sense that the most precious and most cherished and most expensive treasure in all of the universe would not be cheap. You're not going to find it in a bargain bin. Half off. And yet the cost, as great as it may be, no matter how high the cost of discipleship is, it's always a bargain. It's a bargain. We could never, never deserve it. We could never have enough to pay for it. So to give even everything that we have is a bargain. What could you possibly pay God to grow you in Christ's likeness? Absolutely nothing. None of us have enough. Even combined, we don't have enough for one person. 
Jesus wants you to know that it will cost you everything, even your own life. Because to come to Him, to repent and to believe in Him, is to bring every aspect of your life under His Lordship. It's a commitment to applying the first commandment to your life. A commitment to loving and pursuing and treasuring Christ above everything and everyone else in your life. And this is what brings us to the two parables that Jesus tells to help us understand what He's saying. To help us see a picture of counting the cost of discipleship. Salvation is free. Discipleship is costly. So we must count the cost. To illustrate this point, Jesus says, He continues in verses 28-32. to He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all those who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, this is the second parable, or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So let's understand here. Let's make note of the fact that Jesus is not laying out the content of the gospel here. There's no call to repent. There's no call to place saving faith in Christ. There's nothing about Him being fully God and fully man. There's nothing about Him being born of a virgin. There's nothing about Him being perfect in all of His ways, completely sinless, and therefore eligible to be a substitute in, in an atonement for us. No, there's, there's nothing about any of this stuff in what He says. No, He's not talking about the content or the substance of the Gospel message. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about the attitude of the person who hears the Gospel message. He's talking about the seriousness of making the one decision that will cost you absolutely everything. If you're going to buy a house, for example, one of the first things you do is you sit down and you figure out how much of a house can, can I afford. I mean, you can look at a $4.5 million house and say, yeah, that'd be great, but yeah, you're not going to be able to get it, most likely, unless you have a lot of money. So the first thing you do is you sit down and you figure out, what can I afford for a mortgage? And so let's just say, hypothetically, you're able to afford $2,000, just, just to give us a round number. $2,000 for your monthly mortgage. And let's say that you come across this beautiful home, and it's everything that you've ever dreamed of, and you can totally see yourself in it, but it's going to mean that you would have a $3,000 monthly mortgage. So what do you do? Well, all of a sudden, you, you, well, you might make a, a, a deal. You might try to, to negotiate a little bit lower, considerably lower, right? A third lower. But when that doesn't pan out, you stop imagining yourself being in that house. And you walk away from that house. Why? Because you sat down and you've counted the cost. And you know that $3,000 a month is more, 50% more, than you are able to afford per month. But when you find a house that would cost you only $1,500 
every month for a monthly mortgage, your ears perk up and you start visualizing, you start imagining yourself living in that house. Why? Because you've counted the cost. You've counted the cost. And Jesus uses this, these, these parables to teach us that following Him, to be a disciple, is not cheap. To follow Him is not easy. And so before you jump in, sit down and carefully consider. Figure out if you're willing to make the commitment that will cost you everything. Jesus is warning us against making an impulsive decision. He's warning us against making a decision that's just driven by, by pure emotions. You might say, well, why would He warn us against that? What's wrong with that? Well, we often regret decisions that are made impulsively or made spur of the moment because we're on some kind of emotional high in the moment. And if you were to survey so many churches in our day and age, you would see how common it is for churches to do everything they possibly can to press someone to make an impulsive or emotionally driven decision. Lights dimmed. Everybody has their eyes closed. Everybody's sitting down. Nobody's looking around. Let's add some fog. Let's, let's play some soft music on, on the keyboard. So, some, some really, you know, create a soft ambiance in the room. Or, or if, if you really want to pack the place, let's have a famous athlete come and talk about how he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, which he thinks includes catching a football really well or hitting a lot of home runs or punching somebody really hard in the face. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Never mind the context of what Paul says there. And then the invitation to accept Jesus is given. And people who are planted in the audience, churches do this, friends. People who are planted in the audience in order to encourage those who wouldn't otherwise come forward, they start making their way toward the front so that it looks so easy. Just, just raise your hand. Or just walk forward with, with all these other people and repeat this prayer verbatim. Wash, rinse, repeat. But did the person who did that actually get saved? Maybe. It, maybe. It happens. Maybe not. By the grace of God, many have been saved this way. Not because of the unbiblical methodology, but in spite of it. Many have been saved this way, but more often... It turns out to be an impulsive, emotionally charged decision that the person never follows up on. Even one very, very well-known evangelist in our day and age has confessed that he's done the research and only 10-15% to 15 of those who come forward actually follow up on their decision to commit their lives to Christ. 10 or 15% that means that 85 to 90 percent of these people start building a foundation and then realize they don't have enough to finish what they started jesus says they're like a man who wants to to build a tower but realizes that they can't complete it they build the foundation and they can't go any further jesus says they're like a king who goes off to war but doesn't sit down to consider the size of his army versus the size of of the adversary's army. 
Jesus wants us to understand that to follow Him will mean changing all of your priorities. To be a disciple will mean changing all of your ambitions. To be a Christian will mean changing all of your values, all of your desires. All of these things must be surrendered to Christ if you're going to follow Him. If you're going to be a disciple. There are basically three aspects of your life. There's you, there's the people you know, and there's the stuff you have. And Jesus wants us to understand that being a disciple will mean bringing all of these things under His authority. Bringing all these things under His Lordship. He sums up the point of these two parables in in verse 33. He says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Let's look at verses 34 and 35 while we're at it. He finishes up by saying, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's start with that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When Jesus says that, it means you better be listening. It means that what he's saying is really, really important. Your relationships, your stuff, and yourself, your ownership of all of it must come under his authority. That is the cost of discipleship. That means that when you think about your relationships, when you think about your friends, when you think about your family, when you think about co-workers, when you think about neighbors, all these things, you have to understand that they all come under the Lordship of Christ Jesus. When you think about all the things that you have, it means all the things that you have are to be used for the glory of God. You're a steward of them. They're not yours. They belong to God entrusted to you. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you need to give them away in a physical sense. But it does mean that you need to understand that everything in your life comes under the Lordship, under the authority of Jesus Christ. It means that when you think of your own self, when you think of your own life, your desires, your ambitions, you understand that it all falls under the authority of Christ. If following Jesus means that the government is going to come and confiscate your car and confiscate your house, are you still on board? If following Jesus means that the people who are closest to you, the people you love the most, will shun you, will reject you, will despise you, will hate you, will you still follow? If the devil himself comes to claim your life, if you refuse to renounce your faith in Christ Jesus, will you cling to Christ until your dying breath? Will you say, To live is Christ. To die is gain. If it means bringing an end to a sin that you have enjoyed and participated in for years, a sin that you have loved for years, if it means bringing an end to that sin, is it worth it? Do you think it's worth it? We must count the cost. It's true that the gospel is God's free offer of salvation, but it is nevertheless 
costly. Salvation is free. We're not talking about a works-based salvation here. It's free. But it will cost you everything. And Jesus says, any one of you, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Any one of you. That means everyone. It means there, there are no exceptions. It means this is universally applied to anyone who might consider following Him. There is no room for exceptions here. Following Jesus will mean that all of my ambitions, all of my desires, all of my aspirations, all my stuff, all my relationships, it will not be under my own authority anymore. I'm not the boss of me. As a kid might say. Actually, they'd say the opposite. Nothing falls under my own authority. Nothing. Nothing falls under my own authority. It all falls under the authority of Jesus Christ. And consider what he says in verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? What he's saying here, because what they would do is they would get salt that wasn't pure. We get pure salt today so salt doesn't lose its flavor so it's hard for us to to think about salt losing its flavor because if you go to the store and you buy some salt in a hundred years it's still going to be salty in 200 years it's still going to be salty because it's pure salt but back in first century they would get their salt from around the dead sea area and it would be mixed with other things and eventually it would decompose because of the other minerals that were mixed in with it and it would just have a bland flavor and it would be absolutely useless and so jesus is saying that if, a salt, if salt has lost its saltiness, it's worthless. You can't even put it in the manure pile. It's worthless. And that's the picture he's giving for us. He's saying that the disciple who loses his saltiness is worthless. And that's why. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be a Christian, you must count the cost. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, you will grow in His likeness. And that will cost you everything. Consider what Paul says. He's locked up. He's locked up, chained to a guard, and he writes to the Philippians. His most joyful letter. And in Philippians chapter 3, we, we come to this. Philippians chapter 3. Keep in mind, he's chained to a guard as he's writing this. He's reflecting back on his life. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. He says, Whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why, Paul? He says, verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul counted the cost. By the grace of God, Paul counted the cost. He says, I considered the value of everything in my life, everything that I had, everything that I had done, everything that I aspired to be or aspired to do, I realized that everything I had, all that I owned, all that I desired, it was like manure. 
That, that, that's a better translation than rubbish, by the way, because the Greek word actually refers to human excrement. It was like manure in comparison to knowing and following and surrendering it all to Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. And he says that he not only gained Christ, but by surrendering all that he had to Christ, all for the sake of Christ, he also gained Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness is the greatest treasure that anyone could ever possibly have. Because without Christ's righteousness, we are still enemies of God. But the blessing of the gospel is that God sent His Son to bear our sins. Our sins were imputed to Him. They were transferred to Him. And He bore the penalty against our sin. And in exchange, He imputed to us His perfect, sinless righteousness to everyone who would repent and believe in Him. To all who would count the cost and see that Christ was worth it. Paul also gained the power of the resurrection of Christ, he says. What does that mean? The power of Christ's resurrection is a life-giving power. Paul was dead in his sins and transgressions. And the grace of God, the power of the resurrection, was life to him. Now someone might say that they, they couldn't pay a cost that high. And Paul's saying, well, you're dead until you do. You don't have life until you do. You might say, the demands that Jesus has laid out here are impossible for me to live up to. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And it's good that you would realize that this is all impossible for you to do on your own because you must understand that it is God in you. It's the life-giving power of the resurrection in you that directs you and strengthens you and gives you the courage to do what must be done. The power to surrender it all isn't found within us. The power to obey isn't found within us. It's found in Christ. It's found in Christ. And Paul says, verse 11, he says that it's all so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The reality is that Jesus is coming back one day. We don't know when. There won't be any signs. And so we need to be ready. Jesus is coming back and death is not final. There will be a resurrection unto everlasting life and there will be a resurrection unto everlasting torment in a lake of fire for eternity. And the only way to be resurrected into everlasting life is to follow Jesus. So count the cost. So count the cost. The cost is great. But as you consider the cost of following Christ, as you consider the cost of being a Christian, it would be wise to also consider the cost of not being in Christ. Of not being a disciple. It will cost you everything. But it's a bargain. It's worth everything that you have to give. John Calvin said, quote, I gave up all for Christ, and what have I found? 
everything in Christ. End quote. And so I ask you this morning, is, is there any relationship that you have that is more important to you than following Jesus? Is there anyone you love more than you love Christ? Is there anyone, any relationship that you have that might draw you away from obedience to Christ? Because if your answer to any of these questions is yes, you and I both understand what Jesus is saying here. It's not hard to understand, it's just hard to swallow. And so you understand that it means that something's got to change. You need to apply what Jesus is saying here in this passage to your life, to your walk with Him. Are you managing all of your possessions as a good steward to the glory of Christ? All that you have, your home, your car, your clothes, everything. Do you love any of your possessions more than you love Christ? Because again, if if your answer to any of these questions is yes, we understand what Jesus is saying here. We understand that something needs to change. Is there any possession that you would not gladly forfeit if Jesus were to come to you Himself and say, I need you to give that up? Is Jesus the Lord of your desires, of your aspirations, of your ambitions, of your values, of all that you are and all that you have done and all that you plan to do? Is Jesus Lord of all these things? If you don't hate your life and carry your cross daily, it is impossible for you to be His disciple. And so I urge you, friends, to count the cost of following Jesus. To not take it lightly. To see how serious it is. But to see that it's worth everything. By God's grace, I pray that you will see it's worth it. A million times over, it's worth it. There's not a better thing for you to commit to doing. It's worth it. It's worth everything. If forgiveness, peace with God, and eternal life are what you desire, friends, it is only found. All these things are only found in Christ. And if you, like Paul, see that everything else in all of life is rubbish in comparison to knowing and pursuing Christ, then Jesus says, come. Take up your cross. Follow me. You can be my disciple. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, for this passage that challenges us, that seems so impossible to us, that seems completely unrealistic to us, maybe. But we thank You, Lord, for sending Christ to pay the high cost of salvation. And we thank You, Lord, for giving us the strength, for giving us the endurance, for giving us the courage to walk and to endure the road of discipleship. So increase our resolve, Father, as we count the cost and see that Christ is worth it. Increase our resolve to live for the glory of Christ 
to bring all things in our lives. Ourselves, our stuff, our relationships, everything about us under the authority of Christ in order that He would be glorified in us and in order that we would grow in the likeness of Christ. Living for His glory and living a life that is pleasing to you as salt and light in a dark world. We pray these things in the name and for the glory of the one who is worth it all, Jesus. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.